0: Welcome back to Restoration Church. Uh, It's good to have you guys here. If you're a visitor, a first-time guest, let me just say, uh, I hope I'm not the first person to welcome you, uh, but welcome. We're glad you are here. Uh, This is a blessing to have you with us. Uh, For the rest of us, uh, welcome back. I don't know how many of you were with us together um, last week at church together as we were able to have church with uh, our our three sister churches here in town. Um, It was a good opportunity. I don't know how many people We're there, but it was kind of like a big family reunion, having the opportunity to see people from other churches um, that maybe we've grown up with in the faith, maybe that we've known. So it was fun to be able to get together and see what God has placed uh, and what God is doing to the other churches. We are in the book of Jonah. Uh, I'm just going to jump in because we've got a lot to do today. So we're in the book of Jonah. Jonah is in the Old Testament, the first half of your book. Uh, My Bible has Jonah on the page 774. Yours will be a little bit different. Uh, If you don't know where Jonah is, God gave us this really cool thing in the Bible called the Table of Contents. And so if you flip to the Table of Contents, it'll direct you exactly to where Jonah is. Before we look at our text in chapter 3 this morning, I thought I'd do a recap of where we've been in this series. Uh, Since we had a week off and since it's been a while since we've been in this book. So Uh, Jonah, we know, was a prophet of God and he was a national hero in Israel. And his job as a prophet was to deliver God's message to people. God would send him to a place and to a people. and His job was to go and deliver that message. And so God's next assignment for Jonah was to go and to preach God's message to the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria just happened to be one of Israel's arch enemies. But Jonah wasn't too keen on letting those Ninevites which were his sworn enemies. He wasn't too keen on having given them an opportunity to respond to who God is. And so Jonah did what we all would have done. And he ran. He bought a ticket on a ship uh, to Tarshish. Which was about as far as Jonah could get away from Nineveh. And so he jumped aboard the ship, the ship and he set sail. But God, out of love for Jonah. Um, God intervened and sent a, sent a devastating storm. That put the ship at risk of sinking to try and bring Jonah back. Uh, But Jonah still wouldn't relent and told the sailors on the ship, even though we're in the midst of this storm, you know what, you ought to just throw me into the sea. He said, I'd rather die than, than follow through. So the sailors did as Jonah wished, and they threw him into the sea, threw him overboard. And while Jonah was drowning, God sent this great fish, this great fish. If you've grown up in the church, you picture this big fat whale. You know what I'm talking about? So God sent this great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah survives in the belly of that fish for three days. And while in the fish, Jonah realizes that God's grace and his love was evident and that God sent this great fish to swallow him up. And so he calls out to God from the belly of the fish and repents for his rebellion. And after three days, the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Then the last time we were together here at the Seasons... Uh, Jim Herring shared with us how God gave Jonah a second chance. And he sent Jonah again to the city of Nineveh. And he gave him that same commission of, go to Nineveh and preach my message. And his message was a very great message. In fact, it was eight words long. Yet 40 days a Nineveh will be overthrown. We saw that this was a message of judgment on the Ninevites. For eventually all of their sins would be dealt with. Yet this also, and and this message communicated an impending judgment in forty days. But it was also a message of grace, giving the Nineveh Nineveh, people of Nineveh forty days to figure out how they should respond to God. So that's where we pick up this morning. We're in Jonah chapter three. I'm going to start reading in verse four. We'll read verses four through ten. And it starts out and it says this. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out. God relented of the disaster that he said said he would do to them, and he did not do it. It's God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, you are a great God. Even as we sang that song, you are good all the time. And God, I pray that we would come into your presence today and that your spirit would fill us and that we would know that you are good. Lord, I pray for this message of Jonah In Jonah chapter 3, Lord, I pray that you would give us an excitement for who you are, that you would give us an understanding of just who you are, Lord. And I pray that as the people of Nineveh, that we would believe you, that we would have a belief in you. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts today, that we can hear your word for us today. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, I've I've titled this message this morning requirements for revival requirements for revival let's see if i actually oh i did that's awesome um revival simply means that there was a new awakening or an understanding of who god means it means that there was a people a new group of people that became on fire for god and became sold out for god In our text this morning what we just read was nothing short of a miracle See, this book seems to all have all sorts of amazing things as you read through the book of Jonah. We read about all these amazing miracles that God performed. We we saw how God crafted a great storm. We see how God uh, created this, commanded this great fish to come and swallow up Jonah. But now God is going to do something even so awesomely difficult something miraculous in our midst. See, God is going to begin changing the hearts of sinful human beings. That's more difficult than God crafting a storm. That's more difficult than than, than a fish. God is doing something miraculous right in our text today. And so this this whole city turning to God has got to be the greatest revival in all of history. God has thoroughly humbled a violent and arrogant city, and he has resurrected a spiritually dead city. Now, we know that Jonah didn't necessarily like the city of Nineveh. We know that he ran away when God gave him the message of going to Nineveh. And we'll see next week that even though Jonah obeyed and went to Nineveh the second time and he preached God's message, he wasn't necessarily happy about it. He still did not want to extend God's love and and grace to these people. Yet we see this amazing revival. This amazing transformation of a city that had a terrible reputation that were full of bad, mean, ugly people. These, these people were some of the worst people uh, with, with no hope, yet God brought revival and restoration to this city. Now, I know, I know where God has called me. He's not called me to Nineveh. I know that God's called me to the city of Yakima. Every one of us who live here This is where God has called us, and this is where God has placed us. God has placed us here for a reason. Now, the difference between Jonah and me is, while he hated his city, I love my city. I love my city. I love that God has called me here. Yakima absolutely is not a perfect place. (laughs) We have our issues it doesn't matter if you're talking to somebody who lives outside of the Yakima Valley, or even when you sit around a, a table with a group of people who live here in Yakima, you're going to hear the complaints about our city. Well, there's all those gangs. There's all those, jo- there's all those issues. There's all those there's all this problems in our city, yada, yada, yada. Absolutely, Yakima has its issues. Absolutely. But this is still the place that God has called each of us. You know what I want to see in this city? I want to see revival. I want to see revival in this city. I want to see God bringing lost people into a relationship with him. I want to see God begin transforming this city. To bring restoration to the city. I want to see God restore broken relationships. To restore broken families. To restore broken homes. To restore our neighborhoods. This is what I'm praying for. I'm praying that God would bring a revival and bring restoration to this city. And I'm praying that somehow God would use this church to be a part of that. That God would use this church to be a part of that revival. See, this is the reason why we planted Restoration Church. We are 15 weeks old today. We have 15 weeks under our belt. We still have no clue what we're doing. We're just following God, trusting that He's got a plan. But you see, this is the reason why we planted this church. It's not just that so we can come down into this beautiful building and and, and meet with our friends and and sing some good songs and feel good about ourselves. No, we planted Restoration Church with the purpose of knowing Christ and making Christ known. We are here intentionally so that we would make Christ known in this city and share the gospel with those who need to receive Him as their Savior. That is why we are here. That is why we're meeting here today. And so as I was preparing this passage and looking at Jonah chapter 3, I started thinking about this great revival in Nineveh and thinking, man, what if we had just a piece of that in our city? What can we learn from this revival in Nineveh? So as I, as I was going through looking at it, I, I see there are four requirements for revival in our text today. So we're going to look at four revivals that are requirements for the Revival in Nineveh, and I believe these are four requirements for the revival of we're going to see here in the city of Yakima First and foremost We'll see the revival starts with faithfully faithfully preaching God's word Oh good sweet Uh, Jonah preached what God had given him to preach and it was highly effective His message was not a lengthy message. It was only eight words long It wasn't necessarily overly eloquent. Uh, It wasn't the most intellectual, creative, funny, thought-provoking, engaging message. But that didn't matter. All that mattered was that it was God's message preached and heard and the power of the Holy Spirit. And see, our greatest tool in revival and making Christ known in, in the city of Yakima and across the world is the Word of God is this book right here. The author of Hebrews describes God's word as living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating the the, the soul, the spirit, the joints, and and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. You see, this is why when we're here at Restoration Church, we say we are people of the Bible. When you come, it's not just come and listen to some guy spout off his opinion for half an hour. We're going to open up this word and we're going to say, God, show us what you have for us. We're going to say, God, speak to us through your word. Not through the guy on stage, but God, speak to us through your word. We are going to be studying God's word together every time. Because revival starts with faithfully preaching and sharing God's word. And every one of us in our circles of influence, as we have the opportunity to share God's word, do you realize the opportunity we have? It's not just some story. It's not just some some book. It is the word of God. And as we have the opportunity to share that, there is power. There is power in the word of God. Look with me at verse 5. Hey, I'm going to, Shelby, I'm going to have you help me out on this uh, to, to go through, Okay. Verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. See, did you notice whom they believed? In spite of Jonah's miraculous deliverance from the belly of a whale, in spite of the fact that Jonah was the man who delivered the message, we are told that the people did not believe Jonah. It says that they believed God. See, number two for us today requires a belief in God. See, it's significant that the people didn't believe Jonah, but that they believed God. See, faith should never rest in the messenger, but in God who gives the message. This is the the mark of true revival and true preaching. It's not about Jonah. It's about God. The hidden power of God attached to the preaching of God's word was the difference maker. Honestly, and, and, and as, a, as a pastor, as a preacher, honestly, this is a prayer that I have every time I come to preach. That somehow, some way, beyond me and despite me, that God would speak to you his word. That he would add, add power to pierce your heart and to call you into a deeper relationship with him. We live in an era of podcasts and vodcasts and DVDs and, and iTunes and internet streaming. You see, we have to be careful not to allow us as individuals and to allow our churches to get polarized around any one man, around any one preacher, around any one person other than Jesus Christ. Absolutely, every message has a messenger, absolutely. But on a spiritual level, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. When we go into the world and we're trying to make Christ known, see, we're not trying to sell some church experience we're not trying to sell some creative hip speaker we're pointing people to jesus and see the moment the moment that we begin to speak more of our church more of our pastor more of our particular way of doing religion and how we do things different than everybody else when we begin to speak more of that than speaking of god then we've kind of lost the point The message of God is never dependent upon the messenger. See, I have no power in myself to bring about any minuscule change in any person. I remember a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to take a number of kids from Madison House to camp. And there was this one boy that was coming to camp with us, and I was nervous to have him there. This boy came from a rough, rough background. This boy, he had this attitude, and, and, and I just knew that he had little experience with God, little exposure to God or the gospel. And he came to camp and I was nervous about it because I thought, how am I going to connect with this guy? How am I going to get through to him? How am I going to connect with him on a relational level? And then I thought, you know, and if he is not connected to, he's going to start floating and then some of his bad attitudes are going to start creeping in and he's going to be a hindrance to other kids who are here who need to hear the gospel. I remember this kid coming to camp and I was just nervous about him, him being there. Going through camp, going through the week, God did some great things in this guy's life. And the God, in the period of five days, transformed this kid's life. Absolutely, he was a different kid. And on the last night we were there, he came up to me and he's crying and he's crying. He said, Kevin, Kevin, thank you. You changed my life. I had to stop him right there and said, man, I have no ability to do anything like that. It's not me that has done anything. God has done an amazing work. God has done an amazing work in your life. God has used, God uses a pastor, God uses a speaker, God uses the church, but we don't have the power to bring change. It is a belief in God that brings change. It is Jesus Christ who brings change in our lives, not not, not the pastor, not the church. And that's why when we say, number, four, number one for us is, is we've got to have faithful preaching and teaching of, of the word of God. Number two is it takes a belief. It doesn't matter about us. It's all about Jesus. And so as we go and we share God's word, guess what? We're not required to bring the result. God brings the result. We're not required to change the city. We're not required to to bring revival to the city. We're required to be faithful to this. And when we do that, God brings the change. God brings the revival. Hmm. There is a tension for us here when we read that. The people believed in God. The intention for us is are we going to listen to God's word and respond with belief in God? The people of Nineveh, they heard God's word and they responded by believing. John 1 says that all who did receive him, meaning received Christ, and believed in his name, that God gave them the right to be the children of God. It requires us to believe. It requires us to believe God. Not to believe the church, not to believe the pastor, but we believe and trust that God is who he said he is. Now I know that there are some of us in here this morning how, how how we've been we've been searching for answers. We've been investigating. God, is this true? God, are you real? God, are you who you say you are? Can I trust you? In essence, we've had God on trial. Determining in our own minds whether or not he is really there, whether or not he is really trustworthy, whether or not he is really good, whether or not he is really someone that you could put your faith in. Today, can we finally surrender? Can we finally fall before him and say, yes, God, I believe. Yes, God, in response to to what I've heard, God, I believe. I believe. Number three for us this morning. His revival involves repentance. Verses, if you have a Bible, look at verses 6 through 9 with me. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call mightily out to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See, what we see here is the king hears this same message. He hears God's word from Jonah and he does five things. He gets up, he takes off his royal robe, He puts on sackcloth and ashes. He sits down and issues a decree for everyone in the city, and he calls for a citywide fast. Basically, the king is acknowledging his sin. He admits and confesses his own sin and the sin of his city. Now, the sackcloth and ashes sounds kind of (laughs) weird, but it is what it sounds like. A sackcloth was a rough piece of cloth, Used to make sacks. Kind of like if we go to the park in the afternoon today and we do the, the sack races. You guys remember doing those growing up? You get in the sack races. I mean, that's kind of what it is. They'd cut a hole in it, and they'd put it over, and they'd wear that. Um, and, then, and then once they would do that, they, they, the, they would burn something and take the ashes and dust the, their head and their clothes with the ashes. This was a sign in ancient days of grief and discomfort and sorrow. And in calling for a citywide fast, including the animals, The king is recognizing God as the creator and ruler over everything. The king, the most powerful person in Nineveh, what he's doing is literally he's bowing down. He's bowing down his knee and all of his kingdom before the king of heaven. And in taking off his royal robes, he's humiliating himself before all of his people and rightly acknowledging that God is the true king, not him. The king doesn't defend Nineveh by saying her people are his people are undeserving of God's promised wrath. He's not saying, "Well, God, you can't really do this because, you know, we're good, you know, you can't do this." He's not making excuses. No. He acknowledges that evil and violence are in every man's hand. And therefore, he insists that the people do much more than just pray. They must rid themselves of their sinful deeds. See, I want you to see here, I want you to see that repentance really has two parts to it. There's the admitting of sin and the sorrow for that sin that we see from the king, but there is also action. Repentance is two parts. It is sorrow as well as it is action. And sometimes we mistake repentance and think it just means to be sorry, but that's just the first part of repentance. In The apostle Paul's second letter to to the Corinthians, Paul wrote that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Sorrow is the first part. The word repentance itself literally means to change. It means a change of course or direction in the opposite way. So you really you need two parts to repentance. You need sorrow for your sin as well as a change for course. Because if you've only got the sorrow part, it's not genuine. And you've only, get, if you've only got the turning away part that ends in behavior modification without lasting effect. Without sorrow, it's just behavior modification that's not motivated by a real love for God or a desire to obey Him. And if all you have is sorrow, but you never take action, you essentially prove that you weren't really sorry, but you were sorry for the consequences of your sin, not for the actual sin itself. See, repentance is a rhythm of the Christian life. Increasingly becoming convicted of sin and turning away from it, it's the way that Jesus changes us from the inside out as we grow in Him. And the funny thing is, it seems that the longer that I'm a Christian, the longer that I follow God, the closer I grow to Him, it seems the more I see my need to Repent. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I realize how much I mess up. And the more I need to come to God in repentance to say, Man, God, I messed up again. I want you to hear this today. The greatest challenge that we face when we need to repent is pride. Pride begins to flare up in our minds when we're messing up and we think, Nah. I'm, I'm doing all right. It's okay. Everybody struggles with this. Everybody does this. Now nah, I'm okay. I can work through this on my own. I can't admit that I don't have it all together because what if others found out? What if others found out I'm not as perfect and good as I try to be? Every one of us in this room are in need of repentance. That includes me. And I want you to see here the picture of this king. He's the most powerful person in the city. Yet we see him removing his royal robes and putting on sackcloth and ash just like everyone else. He's influential. He's powerful. But he is shedding his royal robes in humility in order to repent. It's more important for him to be made right with God than to have people view him in a high regard. He's more concerned about being being right with God than the way that people view him. We need to be like the king. We need to be willing to disrobe our feeble robes of righteousness and bow down before the king of heaven. We need to be like the king and say, man, I don't care what other people will think about me. I have to have things right with God. I'll slip off my robe of pride and repent. A life with God... Is where we are always being moved and always being turned to see our gracious God. In fact, I want to take this idea of a repentance just a little bit further because this is something that that I've seen played out. As we begin to live a life of repentance, it begins to transform so many different areas of our lives. I think about my marriage. I think about I think about how how sometimes in marriage, you come home and you're in one of those crabby moods. You're just cranky. You don't know why, but you're just lashing out. You're just bitter and grumpy. And I found, I used, to, I used to try and justify my crankiness and say, well, it's not my fault. I was raised like this. Well, it's not my fault. The kids are loud and I'm tired and I just need some quiet. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And you know what I found that did to my wife? Any men know what happens when you blame somebody else when you're cranky? Does it help your wife out? Absolutely not. But you know what I found when I began to repent and, and, and own my sin? And say, man, I'm wrong for this. Man, it began to transform our relationship. And this, tra- this idea of repentance, if we own this idea of repentance, man, raising your family as an employee to repent, and not just excuse, man, I, I blew that sail. No, no, man, I, I was wrong, and I'm wrong for that. I'm sorry. If we can, if we can begin to repent and own our sin and turn from it, man, I, it seems like God just begins to transform these areas of our life. That's the way I've seen repentance played out in my life. Is as we live a life of repentance, God uses it and begins to transform. And this is why. Look, last look, look with me at verse ten. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, how they repented, God relented of the disaster that he said would come to them, and he did not do it. See, number four for us is in revival, we experience God's amazing grace and forgiveness. Next week, we're going to see that this was clearly God's plan all along from the very beginning. But today, I want you to see the character of God in this verse because this is what it is all about the author's point in verse 10 is for us to read it and think wow oh i can't believe that god is so gracious <laughs> those people in nineveh they were sick and they were evil and they were bad they were just horrible people yet god extended grace to them yet god forgave them wow god is a gracious god maybe there's hope for someone like me because deep down i know i'm dirty Deep down, I know I'm messed up, just like the people of Nineveh. And I need a God like that, too. That's the point. That's the point in verse 10. You see, there's something bigger going on here than just Jonah and Nineveh. The story is not about either one of them. It's about a gracious God who loves and forgives sinful people. It's about God doing the greatest miracle of all, greater than the storm, greater than the fish. The greater than the city of Nineveh, the miracle that God is doing here is changing our hearts. See, the very fact that, God, that Jonah was even sent to such a place like Nineveh reveals that God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. And because of God, all of the Ninevites turned from their wicked ways and placed their trust in, and belief in God and His mercy. Everyone repented from the least to the greatest, from the kids to the king. Nobody was crying out, oh, this is all your fault. This is your fault that God is coming to judge us. No, rather they were crying out, this is my fault. They were no longer proud. They were humble. And that's what true repentance requires. And when true repentance is offered, God promises to forgive and restore. And this proves we see that 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 Nineveh's repentance was was real because God did forgive and he restored them. True repentance means that by true repentance is a means by which God brings real restoration. A restoration that brings the deepest experience of peace. Peace means universal flourishing and wholeness. Peace doesn't just mean being happy. Happiness is fleeting. As a Seattle sports fan, if any of you are in that situation like I am, you know, you know that happiness is fleeting. Mariners win a game and we're happy, but you know there's a loss coming. You know there's another game tomorrow night. And you know that happiness is fleeting. But peace, peace is different. Because godly peace endures and overcomes even through the hard times. Even through the losses. Even through the trials. See, sin twists and corrupts things. Sin brings brokenness to our lives and to our world. And peace straightens things out and cleanses them. Peace brings healing and restoration. And this peace that rights the wrongs, that brings healing and restoration, this peace is extended through God's forgiveness and grace to Nineveh. And that is only available to them through repentance. Peace is only comes through repentance. Repentance is a hose that peace flows out of. And when the hose is kinked, peace doesn't flow. This, when you look at the city of Nineveh, the city of Nineveh was not the same city that God had promised to destroy. See, that city that God promised to destroy, that city was violent and wicked and unrighteous, full of atheists. They were proud, luxurious Nineveh. And that was the city that God promised to destroy. But what we see here in, in Jonah chapter 3 is we see here, is a city in sackcloth and ashes, humbled to the depths of submission. A Nineveh like that, this was a whole new city. That Nineveh that God threatened to destroy had passed away, and it became a totally new city. It became a new creation. Old things are passed away and new things have become. I want to bring this to a close by saying that just as God sent a revival to the people of Nineveh, God is also offering each of us the same revival in our own hearts. God offers us the same opportunity. We don't have to be the old Nineveh anymore. We don't have to be the old creation. We don't have to be known for the things that we used to be known for. We don't have to be the Kevin of old. When we believe in God, when we repent, and when we experience God's grace and his peace, we become a new creation. We become the new Nineveh, the new Kevin. The old has gone, and the new has come. We are not the same person that we were once known for. Now we are known for our relationship with Jesus Christ and not our past. As the worship team comes up, I want to give you an opportunity to respond with me to God's word this morning. You know, as much as I want to see a great revival spread across the city, do you know where revival has to start? It starts right here. It starts with you, and it starts with me. We need revival in our hearts, in our lives, just like the people of Nineveh did. Can I invite you this morning to respond with me to these requirements for repentance. Can you submit yourself to belief in God? Belief that He is all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, that He is trustworthy, that He he is even there for you through the hard times. Can we submit to God and believe that He is God and that He is who He said He was? And can we come before God and can we repent? Can we repent of our sin and our attitudes and our actions that defy and show unbelief in God? 1 John says that if we repent, that he is faithful and just to forgive us. So let's acknowledge our sin. Let's express our, our remorse for disobeying God. And let's make a change today that honors him. And finally, can we just worship God in celebration? For the fact that he has extended to us love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. This is good news that God loves us. That God has extended the people of Nineveh grace. And that God extends us grace. So can we celebrate Christ through that and worship him?